Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. And thank you for tuning in. So... We teased this in an earlier episode, but to say it again, Nicole and I are going to be having a panel at South by Southwest in the civic engagement track. So if you're at South by Southwest, come see our panel. It's going to be March 13th from 1130 to 1230 at the Hilton in downtown Austin. And we're going to be talking about food insecurity in that panel. What are the causes? What are some of the solutions? And trying to get a real holistic understanding of this topic. So we invited one of our panelists to come onto the show and share more about her experience for those of you who are not going to be able to make it by South By, which we understand this is actually our first time, confession. So we want to give you an insight into what that talk is going to look like. So we spoke with Lawson Picasso, and she's a firecracker. Like She's amazing. She has a lived experience with living in her car, with experiencing food insecurity, which we talk about in the show. And now she is turning that into advocacy work to share her story to help lawmakers know that component that those folks need to be at the table shaping policy because who knows better about how to solve this than those who've actually lived through it. So we are just really grateful for her time and for her being so honest about what it's like to live in such a precarious state. So Nicole, what did you think of this conversation? What an honor to get the chance to talk to her. She's fascinating. And she shares about her story so beautifully and so compellingly. Definitely, I think people will find so much that's interesting in this conversation. And I'm going to highlight again that we really want to emphasize that as often as possible, we hope to include people in conversations who have had real lived experiences with the things that we talk about. And so Lawson really highlights that fact that that is a necessity that folks need to be able to advocate for themselves and the folks who know best what they need are people who have had experiences that we're trying to problem solve. So what an honor. I'm so grateful that she was willing to talk to us and that she shares so openly about her life experience. Yeah. Check this one out, y'all. Hey, everybody. We are here with Lawson Picasso, and we are so excited to chat with her to learn more about her story, the work she's doing, and to have a better understanding of food insecurity in Texas. So hello, Lawson. How are you? I'm good. Hello. It's good to be here. Well, we're really excited that we got put in touch with you and hear more about your lived experience and to have a better understanding of this big topic, because I think it's something that if you don't really deal with it, you don't think about. So we're always looking for topics that we can really dig into and have a better holistic understanding of. So with that said, we always like to start at the beginning with our guests and get a little bit of their origin stories. So can you tell us, are you from Texas? Like, what was your upbringing like? Yeah, so I am a Texan, born and raised. I've lived in every major city in Texas except for Dallas. So I've lived on the west side as far as El Paso, down south in the valley, which is Edinburgh, Texas, 
Corpus Christi, Houston, did a stint in Austin. I currently reside in San Antonio, Texas, but a majority of my upbringing and my childhood is from a small town in South Texas called San Diego, Texas. So that's where I was born and was raised by a beautiful community of women. My grandmother and my mom raised me and they both had neighbors on either side of them that were also women. So it was just like, I was very much surrounded by these like very powerful, empowering women voices, always like just like kind of lifting me up and raising me. So very fortunate for that. The other thing we like to ask about is since this is a political podcast, what was your experience regarding politics growing up? Was this something that your family was discussing or not as much? Yeah, politics definitely was a big topic of discussion in my family. My grandfather, he passed away two years before I was born, but was heavily involved in Texas politics. And my family had a lot of to do and was crossed into Texas politics, especially at in the South Texas level. So growing up, it was not an option of whether or not you were going to be involved in what's going on in society today. It was what did you read? Could not just read the headline of a newspaper. You had to come in with like your own perspective of the views that were written within the newspaper and kind of really come in understanding what's going on in society. And my grandmother was Democratic. My grandfather was Republican. So it was always a house divided. But that same value of understanding different sides was something that she raised me on and my mom raised me on. See where there's a bipartisan opportunity, like where some people, they may be wrong here, but are they right here? And how can you come to a middle ground? And that view really stuck with me and how I look at life today and how can I discuss things that may be a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation in moving the needle forward. So politics was definitely a part of my family. I love that. Were there particular things that were coming up for y'all, like specific issues that bubble to the surface? I think that the biggest moving point politically that came up for me and my family was right after 9-11 happened, you saw a lot more of the controversy come to the forefront because now it's war is now at the front of the head. And you know what's really going on with the oil industry and back home I always say the dirtier the truck, the bigger the house, because the oil industry really did support a lot of the households back home. I knew about Halliburton and what an Eagle Ford shale was before I think I knew about a lot of other things that really did shape my views as a child, understanding that there is an impact to the oil industry whenever you we go to war and what that looks like. And then also understanding the political ties to oil and that looks like. And really realizing that some folks are playing checkers on a chessboard and some people really are a master class of playing chess. And who are those people and what are those conversations looking like? Again, my mom, she was a single mom. And so she had me and then she had my sister later on. And she also had a pre-existing condition. So I was fully aware what healthcare looked like in America and the impacts that can have on a single income household. And so that for me, I think was my first shock into why can't you just go to the doctor or why can't insurance just be given? And why do you have to look at your medication and figure out, do I have enough to get me through the month? And why are these extra stresses coming in? Because for for a kid, it seems so practical, like get your medicine. That's what you got to do. You got to go to the doctor. Why can't you just go to the doctor? And she, she was born with a congenital heart defect. So she had to drive to Houston, which for us about six and a half, seven hour drive in order to get to her doctor. And it was not a matter of like, well, can't you just get a cardiologist that's closer? Her heart condition was so unique that there was only a handful of doctors in the world that could actually perform a surgery on her. Those were some of the issues that definitely rose up for me and I never understood. Moving around 
Texas, I saw different demographics of issues that impacted folks. So going from a small town where you're just seeing the economic impacts of an oil refinery, then you go to a big town where then you see the environmental impacts of the oil field and refineries and what that looks like. And you see more of like marginalized communities and different demographics. And I learned what poverty really looks like in a larger community in a metropolitan city that I had not been impacted before. And also what racial demographics, like in South Texas, it was a primarily Hispanic town. Even in a primarily Hispanic town, I was too brown for my community and I got picked on from my color of skin. But then going to Houston, I was completely welcomed by the Black community who taught me how to put oils and different things in my hair so I could manage it, which was completely abnormal for me because I'd never been exposed to that before. I feel truly blessed that I didn't stay. My mom was kind of like, I have to go somewhere else. And we moved around as much as we did because it gave me so many different facets of this unorthodox diamond of perspective that I now carry with me in what I do today. That's so interesting. I also think there's something to say, applaud you for, which is feels like you have really unique powers of observation. <laughs> I feel like you could put somebody so else early, in right? the, yeah, <laughs> the same set of circumstances and they might just kind of be oblivious to what is happening and going on around them. So that's also, I think, something I hope you give yourself credit for is just that you were paying attention, whether or not you knew how you were going to integrate all these things that you were seeing around you at the time. You had a consciousness that I think is really really fascinating. And it's awesome to see how you've used those experiences to shape how you view the world now. It's pretty amazing. And it sounds like you were doing this really early in your life. And that's also impressive. I feel like Nicole and I are like, huh, something's not right here a little later in life, but that's okay. (laughs) 100%. Well, and I was thinking to you about, it sounds like you were relatively politically awakened pretty early. And my family for sure. We just don't do uncomfortable things. That's just kind of the family culture. And so I also think it's just really interesting that you came from a family where you sort of do the opposite. It sounds like, no, we steer into these things and we talk about them and you have to have a perspective and justify that perspective. I think that's such good. I'm thinking of it in the raising of my own children, because sometimes I think maybe I could use a little bit more of that. I think sometimes I get a little protective and sort of think that creating a bubble is the thing to do for them. But I think there's a balance that I could strike here that asks them to be more aware of the world. So this is great. I'm getting great takeaways already. (laughs) Yes. So we would love it if you could tell us a little bit about your story. We know that you have done a lot of speaking engagements regarding your personal experience of being food insecure. So can you tell us what that was like? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because many years of therapy and understanding myself and under having more of a self-awareness to what like, oh my God, that was a traumatic situation. And I was definitely reacting to suppressing a lot of these issues. I've learned a lot about myself in those in those circumstances and had these lived experiences. And I call it a tale, like it's the tale of two cities, right? It's the best of times and it's the worst of times. And of all the books that I read in high school, never once was I going to say that that would be the book that I resonated with the most in life. I never thought about that. And I didn't realize, and kudos to my mom for not making a poor situation feel that way. As I mentioned, I lived in Houston for a minute. And at that point, my mom was in between jobs. She'd just gotten married and there were three girls and then two parents and two dogs living in a two-bedroom apartment on a not-so-great part of Houston. And I now look at a pork chop and I can't eat it to save my life because that was the cheapest and what we ate a lot of. And I never thought of 
that being like a food insecurity of we don't have a well-balanced diet because we can't afford a well-balanced diet. And there were times where I saw my mom cry, but she didn't necessarily give us insight as to why she was crying, but it was because she was trying to keep the lights on while also putting food on the table and then trying to get Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and make sure you have an experience and make sure your life is like, you don't feel like you're being depriving your kid of a life, which was a very different experience when living with my mom than going back to San Diego and living with my grandmother who just gave me everything and always opened the doors of opportunity for me. And seeing that perspective and just never really having a grasp of it until I became an adult and was 20 years old and had followed a boy to San Antonio. And it truly felt like overnight went from having some stability, living in an apartment, everything was good. And then just getting the message of, hey, it's not working out and I'm going back home. Sorry to do this to you. And then feeling like you had nothing. And that's exactly what happened was I had absolutely nothing. Ability to have any type of housing that went away. I didn't have a car. So here I am now at 20, looking at a ring that my grandmother gave me and was like, in case of emergencies, you use this ring and you pawn it to get whatever you need. And I'm now here in an emergency having to pawn it to put a down payment on a 2008, 84,000 plus mile Dodge Neon that I had to purchase. Like I got into like a payment agreement with them, but had to put a down payment on that with a mom and pop shop down here in San Antonio. And it was that situation where I'm now in a car and I'm thinking like, okay, great. Like I have a door and now it's like, what's next? And then realizing like, you only have like $20 to your name at this point. Like, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? And I'm looking over my passenger side and I had my sweet baby, a chihuahua, Rue, and it was just her and I, and we were just like looking at each other like, all right, well, what's next? And had to really hustle. And so I got a job waitressing and I worked at Hooters and I made a community of friends there and really worked my personality and my love for sports and was able to make good tips off of that and had to really save all my acorns and figure things out. But that took time. And I remember, again, looking at whatever dollars I had and thinking, do I get gas to go to work? Or do I get food to feed me and my dog? And my dog and I usually lived off of the dollar menu at McDonald's. And what is that going to look like? And is there a safe space in San Antonio that I can stay in and sleep in? And that survival mode. One of the reasons why I chose Hooters was because you have to stay fit. There is a very materialistic idea to Hooters that still remains today that I roll my eyes at as a feminist. But hey, girls got to do what you got to do. And they provide free gym memberships. And I saw that and I thought, here's a shower. Here I can finally get a shower. I have electricity so I can fix my hair and do my makeup and charge my phone and give my car a rest because Lord knows that that battery, it was on living on a hope and a prayer. So it was that idea of like, as long as I look like everything's fine, nobody's going to question what my living situation is. And we were very politically involved. And I mentioned that like growing up. And it was one of these ideas that regardless of what's going on behind closed doors, like you could be throwing the dishes from the kitchen table at each other, but you open that door and everything is good. Like it is apple pie and white picket fence and it's a smile and you are good. And that's how I was raised. And so I didn't want people to know that life was messy. Even my mom didn't know. I remember every mom call me when you get home. And so I would stall shake the keys, be like, just got home here. I'm coming in. So nobody knew, but it was tough. It was a six month period of my life at 20. I think of 
being 20 years old now at 30 and thinking like I was a baby. Like I was trying to figure out who I was at that point and then having to understand my own identity of who's Lawson and while also having to feed Lawson and figure those things out. And I remember when I finally had enough money to get into an apartment and finally getting a key and being able to put a key to a lock and open a door, I just cried because that door was mine. And that key was my home. And regardless if it had nothing in it at all, like that was my space. And that was mine to be able to maintain. And that was just a celebration of all celebrations. It really helped me feel like, okay, like we're going to get out of this. Like we're done. Like we don't go back here. We just move up from here. So Lawson, can I dig in there? Were you living in your car? Is that what I'm understanding? I did. So how did you find places that... That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Where do you go in your car like overnight? It was almost serendipitous. So the HEB, which grocery store here, everything's better. And it was. I worked at Hooters and I usually worked in the evenings because that meant better tips and which meant I also got out of work fairly late. And obviously pre-pandemic, HEBs were open. There were some HEBs that were open 24-7. And I went to my local HB to get some groceries. And when I'm talking groceries, I'm talking like granola bars and things that I can store in my car that are non-perishable. And one evening, this guy just kept following me and was just sees the orange shorts and it just gets kind of creepy. And security guard intervened and stayed with me to finish my groceries. And he saw me go to my car and he goes, where are you going? I'm like, my car. And he's like, where are you leaving to? I've seen your car quite a few times. Again, Smurf blue. So it's pretty much like you can pick that, that car out of anywhere. And I said, no, I'm staying here. After a great discussion, he said, here's my schedule. I'm here this many days. And then when I'm not here, I'm actually at the Walmart across the way. So you can go and stay there and I'll make sure that you're good. Make sure nobody messes with your car. That way you can get some good sleep. And so that's kind of like the agreement that I had with him. It's like, I'll make sure you're good, but this cannot be permanent. I want to know that you're getting your life in order. And it was like, yes, sir. Like, that's thank you so much. And so he watched over me while I slept at night and was able to do that. That's amazing. Don't cry because I'm going to cry too. Sorry, 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 sorry. This is what I do. That's a lot. (laughs) But I'm so glad that you found somebody. There was a guardian angel out there like that for you. I will say one of the things that I feel like I owe San Antonio so much because if it wasn't for the community of San Antonio, I would not be where I am today. They definitely pulled me and helped me. And one of the things that I always think is just amazing about the community that I live in is that they open their door to you and they make sure that you're good and they won't ask questions. And I love that about where I'm at. So a lot of my drive to bring awareness to a lot of the historic and systemic and new issues that we continue to see here locally and across Texas stems from like, no, like these people help me. Like I need to give back. I need to pay it forward. I need to pay it back. I need to do whatever I can to show like the grace that they gave me was not lost on me. So awesome. Can I ask another question that again, I feel like you answered this in some way. It's just a curiosity I have. It's the feeling of a safety net. I have always, and I am recognizing that this is an incredible privilege of my life. I've always felt that I had a safety net to turn to. I'm just curious if it was sort of pride or not feeling like you had a safety net. Like, How do you kind of look at that determination you had to sort of do it on your own in secret? My mom and I had a very weird dynamic. And I don't know if it was because I was her first kid and she was 30 when she had me. But being the youngest of her family, of her siblings, and then having a heart condition, there was a lot of growth that never occurred in her life because she was very much held and over-nurtured. So having a kid, she was still a kid trying to figure this out. And we had a very interesting dynamic. 
And it was more of a friendship, more than a mother-daughter thing. And then I felt like I became more of the maternal figure for her in her times of weakness. And my mom, as brilliant as she was, was not smart when it came to picking the proper mate. And my stepdad and I did not get along. And he was into all sorts of things and got her, put her in really unsafe situations. And I knew that she already had a lot of other battles that she had to figure out and was going through that it wasn't going to be safe for me or for her for me to go home. And my grandmother at that point was already older. And in fact, she had moved to go live my aunt in El Paso. So that was not a viable option. So looking at the two immediate vessels of my call homes not being available and being blocked, that meant that I needed to figure it out, which for me is not abnormal. I mean, I thrive at a crisis, which is a good thing and a bad thing. I go into a game mode. Having a parent that has chronic condition, you know how to get into a mode and put your emotions aside so you can get through it. And then afterwards, you just have a long cry. And so I was able to just put my head down, know that something needed to get done, put my eye on a goal and just keep moving toward it. And going home was just not an option. I think I just maybe wanted to highlight some of what you just said, because I think so much of what we're hoping to do here is really shed a light on the truth of a lot of these situations, what it's like to live in precarity, what it's like to live food insecure, what it's like to live in, if not in poverty, like in proximity to poverty. And I think a lot of people might think that there's sort of irresponsible choices being made or that people don't come from, in air quotes, like good families. And there's just a lot, I think, of myths that if we can dispel them, that would be incredible, which is you had what appeared to be a support system, but even that support system had a lot of stresses on it. Could you tell us a little bit about that, about some of the myths that you've personally encountered or have encountered in your work around folks who are dealing with poverty or food insecurity and are in these really precarious states? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is a particular poster child for poverty. There is a particular poster child for a Hispanic in poverty. And that ideology that you don't check all the boxes, so it doesn't make any sense. We need to break that perception. There is perfect poor person. There is no one size fits all for how people get there. It is. It is. Everybody's living on the razor's edge. And I think that 2020 really highlighted that blink of an eye. You can go from donating to the San Antonio Food Bank to being in the line of the San Antonio Food Bank. And that was humbling too, to see that all of a sudden it went from a couple of vehicles and then a Lexus and a Mercedes also in the line. And you're thinking, why are you here? But it can happen to anybody. And I think for me... I became every different status of like, she's not going to be successful. I mean, was poor. I lost everything. So was homeless. Had to drop out of school. And that meant having to figure that part out. And what am I going to do? Because I wanted to get an education. If you're going to go to college, but when are you going to get your graduate, get your master's? And that's also a conversation that was had. But now here I am just trying to survive. And then I got pregnant in between right after everything had happened. And I'm in an apartment and I started dating another guy. And then all of a sudden we find out we're pregnant and that was a whole thing. So it's just like, now is she really going to go to college? And you know, now I'm a young Hispanic mom, which that has its own type of like stereotype on its own. And just really breaking this idea that she's not going to do anything because she's uneducated or she's a young mom or whatever the stereotype is. Hardships can land on anybody, but anybody can also have the opportunity to get there if they have the resources or they know where the resources are. And one of the things that I learned living in my car was I didn't know what my resources were. I didn't know what opportunities and options I had to me. 
And the only reason why I found out about the food bank was because I had a girlfriend that worked with me that said, hey, yeah, at the church, they do distributions and it's all non-perishable items. You should go. That's the only reason why I knew was because of community discussions. But I didn't know. A lot of the knee-jerk reactions have, for getting access to resources is it's on our website. But then what do we learn? We learn there's a digital divide. And not everybody has access to the internet. And not everybody knows how to read and write. And not everybody speaks English. And so all of these different layers of a barrier, it turns into a barrier. It turns into this wall of not being able to grasp the resources that are allegedly accessible becomes larger and larger and larger. And I think in my perspective, in my own experience, seeing that my mom who had a pre-existing condition should have been able to get access to healthcare easily because it also you know, impaired her from being able to hold a full-time job at most points and a full-time job that could pay for her to have her surgeries. But that was not the case. And then all of a sudden, having a pre-existing condition gets the amount of money you have to pay for health insurance goes up and your ability to actually get access to good health insurance goes up. And it just continues to suppress people to staying down. And it's just like, how do the rich stay rich and the poor stay poor? Well, because we keep getting this gap that grows and grows and grows. And this middle income, this middle working blue collar demographic, it's dwindling because we're seeing that the gap between low income and high income is continuing to rise and we're suppressing it. And we're not really giving equitable and inclusive vessels of access to resources and assistance to help them get out of there. Public transportation, if you look at how these communities are zoned and designed, you see the low income stays on one side of town and you have incomes on the other side of town. And that's completely intentional. And so now it's a matter of having the discussions of how are we fixing that? What are we really doing to help people? We just had the whole conversation about the rezoning of the different state seats. Did we do it selfishly or did we do it understanding that we need more people to be represented and we're not giving equitable time to the voices that actually need the support that are given? Do you mean like for the congressional seats or the Mm -hmm. legislative? Okay, we have an episode about that, about gerrymandering. So go back and listen. I have so many thoughts. I'm like, which way to go? But I'll pick this one. So when you were talking about your experience working at Hooters and living in your car, you said you tried your best to look like everything was fine. Do you think the people in your life knew the precarious state you were in? No, my mom didn't know. She told me straight up. She's like, she goes, I had no idea this was going on until I had to like have a come to Jesus talk to my therapist. Like you need to talk to your mom about this. And it's funny because as much as we talked about things happening to other people, feelings were not a thing that we talked about in our family. Like I said, it's one of those like the plates are crashing behind closed doors, but we don't actually apologize to each other. My grandmother used to say, she's like, you get one ugly cry. That's it. You get to have one ugly cry and then you put your face on go fix your hair and we're done. We move on from it. Like that was like Latina, like machisma type of like, we are not talking about this. We are strong women kind of idea, which is both good and bad. And in moderation, it's good and not, it's bad. But they didn't. They had no idea that there was this much struggle going on. Do you think that this is common? Like Nicole and I think about the invisibility of this and maybe that's why it's not addressed as much. Do you think probably more people in our lives that are in this state and we just don't realize it? I think so. I think that there's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses that occurs in this. And gosh, social media does not help it. The fact that we joke about Instagram versus reality, we have this social pressure to be perfect and to be keeping up with the societal norms and what that looks like. And nobody wants to talk about the debts that they have or the hardships they're going through or the mental health battles that we're having to face every day don't want to have to deal with talk about maybe my kid has disability and that means that I'm going to have to now be that person that has that kid and or that situation or I'm that person. 
it's not wanting to be a burden on anybody and also wanting to just meet the standards that society today are telling us we have to meet in order to be successful. Very much like there's a poster child for poverty, there's a poster child for what success is supposed to look like. And this term has been going around quite a bit, especially since the pandemic had started recently, is the pick yourself by the bootstraps. Like pick yourself up by those bootstraps. Like I was able to do it. And even people are like, well, you look at you, you picked yourself up by the bootstraps. And it's like, yes, but I had to be able to afford the boots to put them on to pick myself up. And I wasn't always able to afford the boots. And that's the part of the narrative. Like I feel like we say this, we make that statement midway through the story. There was a purchasing of those boots. There was being able to acquire the boots in order to pick ourselves up. We didn't get there overnight. That was not an overnight thing. And not everybody has access to the boots. And we need to understand, like, we don't have access to it. What are we doing wrong? Like, how can we get you access to that? But nobody sees that. Asking for help was not something that was impressed on me as a child. You didn't ask for help from other people. It's like, we'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. We'll always figure it out. So that kind of being raised in that type of environment, and a lot of folks are, it definitely suppresses the awareness of knowing what's going on with other people. Yeah, I just want to share something I found. I think it was maybe on the Feeding Texas website that said around 37 million Americans are food insecure, which is like one in 10 Americans. And in Texas, I think it's one in eight So if you have like eight people, one of them is food insecure, which is a huge percentage of the population. And I'm just like, if so many people are dealing with this, why don't we feel the urgency to help them get out of that situation? So why do you think that's the case? I think with a lot of different issues that are going on, it's the question of, do we have the right people at the table to discuss this? Everybody wants to cut the ribbon and be the hero, but do we have the right people at the table? And I mean, I had the opportunity and Feeding America gave me the opportunity to go to the White House and go to the conference for the hunger, health and nutrition. And a lot of us left there feeling like we just a box that got checked off to say that you had folks here with lived experiences. How much of what we're actually seeing today is going to actually be incorporated? The input that we're giving doesn't really matter because the day before the conference, they released a strategic plan. Before they talk to you? (laughs) Yeah. Gosh. So it was like, we have the strategic plan, but we want you all to come here to this conference to talk about the strategic plan. I'm like, and then you look at it. I'm like, this isn't a plan. This is a vision. There is no action. There's no benchmarks to actually go into. What are we going to look at? How are we going to be really measuring the metrics of what you guys are saying your goals and your visions and your opportunities are? It's not realistic. It's very lightly written. And that's what it is today. We have a lot of policies and a lot of programs that are being created by folks that don't have a hand or a heartbeat on what's going on right now. And we're bringing in people that do at the very tail end when things are already being done and we're just ready to hit the button to press go. We're seeing this backwards when we should have folks at the very beginning of it. Another theme that Claire and I have talked about a lot kind of off mic is saviorism and sort of that kind of feels like what you're talking about. There's this real desire, I guess, to be the savior, but in ways that aren't addressing the systemic issues that we're talking about. It feels very vain to me. It feels like it is a real chance for people to pat themselves on the back for being so giving and kind and philanthropic But in reality, we're just perpetuating the same issues again and again and again and again. And so I find myself frustrated the more I read, the more I hear, the more I'm listening to your experiences like this, because that's just feeling more and more true. And it is so frustrating. And yet we are problem solvers and we are hopeful. So it sounds to me like what I would definitely advocate for is 
having people in positions of power who have lived experiences, who can speak to what it does take to access resources, what's helpful, what's not helpful, what are the real metrics of measuring success, that it can't just be, look, I'm not going to denigrate imagination. We do need to be imaginary when it comes to these things, but goodness gracious, if you can't like back that imagination up with real solutions, then it's just an exercise in daydreaming. I guess I'm feeling really fired up again. So I guess number one is we have to elect people who are true representatives of the citizens of this state. And that isn't wealthy folks who have not really struggled. I mean, it's just not going to have the right conversations. I'm not saying that they can't. There is capability there. (laughs) But I think that it's just not happening right now. Yeah. Have you had that experience, Lawson? I mean, do you think that saviorism plays a role in keeping the current status quo? I think so. I think it took me a while to feel comfortable to speak about my own story with living insecure and living in my car because I was always afraid that if I did it in a space that wasn't the right space, then it's just, oh, you're just bragging because like you made it. And it's like, look what I was able to do. And I didn't want it to ever come off as like cocky or pretentious. I wanted my story to be utilized in a way that moved the needle forward. And if my story could help somebody else feel like they had a voice to come and write next to me, and it's like, when we are together, we are greater, right? The voice gets louder. And so that I was very afraid of becoming part of that, becoming part of the saviorism of like, look at me, and I'm going to go and kiss the babies and do all this because I'm one of you. I never wanted that to happen. And I see a lot of it where it's so disingenuine when somebody comes into the community and they roll up their sleeves and I always call it the JFK checkbox. Like you always know a politician when they're in a blue shirt, it's rolled up the sleeves and they're coming in and it's just like, they look like you. And they use the word robust at least seven times in one message. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It is true. It is true. If you say the word robust, naturally, you know that you should be in politics. And I always cringe at it. And I always say, if I ever get into politics, whoever's writing my speeches, do not use this word. (laughs) It is like first rule of Lawson, like don't use the word robust. But it's true. And I think that we have a lot of folks that they're empathetic. I think that there's politicians that are empathetic and we see a lot of that and they want to know and they want to have these eye level conversations, but they're not the majority. And the majority go to the events and they rub the elbows of the people that are donating to the causes. But are they out there? Do they know? They really have an idea. If they do, how long ago was it? I always feel like everybody should have at least one job in their life, like the service industry. Like, go wait a table, be yelled at, get the tip that says you're not getting the monetary tip, but my tip to you is to smile more. Like, have these real harsh experiences to really tell you, like, yeah, people matter. People will get you where you need to go and, like, figure this out. Like, we voted you in, we want an action in return. Like, we need to see what we receive. Like, these empty promises. I think we're also in a generation where there is more education with the voters and especially the younger voters. They're educating themselves a lot more and they're less impressed by the shiny things and this idea of wanting to be the hero for all, it's becoming less and less believable. And they're like, yeah, okay, how do you know this? Where did you grow up? Oh, you grew up over here on this side of town? Don't tell me about education inequity or health inequities or the fact that your roads, you had sidewalks your entire life. Like there is a sidewalk inequity and how infrastructure and lack of infrastructure is also a reflection of poverty. I mean, safe roads is a privilege and it shouldn't be. You should not be able to walk down a street and worry that your sidewalks are going to cut off and now you're in the middle of the street and now you're completely not protected. 
by a bunch of speeding cars going by. That is the reality of a lot of folks in communities right now. I hear what you're saying. It's awful. Well, even, okay, or you're in the street or you're like walking through this high grass that's like itching your legs because they don't care about maintaining it. Terrible. I guess for me personally, what I'm trying to figure out is we only have like so much time and energy and where is it best put to maximize the best well-beings for for people. And I like that you're hammering on this need of having real authentic leaders in office because they're the ones who control so much of the policy and so much of the state budget. Nicole and I talk a lot about the podcast, how we have a $33 billion budget surplus. And the things that we hear them talk about are like property tax relief and maybe some infrastructure and maybe schools, but we've heard zero about helping address food insecurity even housing, which is part of this. So yes, I want to see more people at the table that really represent more Texans because we absolutely don't have that. But then I think about like nonprofit work too and how that's a necessary thing to have to help people in the immediate. So I'm like, do we put our effort into nonprofit or is that just a Band-Aid and really we should like pivot towards advocacy? I mean, where have you landed in this? How do we have the most effective approach quickly? It's a twofold. Nonprofits are there as a immediate line of defense. They can immediately help folks with what's right in front of them, right? I mean, the food bank, they can get food into folks' homes as quickly as possible by that. It's like, you're hungry today. We can get something in in front of you tomorrow. We can do that. But there has to be a short-term solution and a long-term solution. And we also need to look at, we didn't get here overnight. This is due to the historical impact and segregation of the communities marginalizing black and brown communities for years before even I was born. I mean, my grandfather, he was an attorney and he had to take his license with him to court cases because nobody believed that a brown man actually went to law school. And he was one of four. He always used to gloat that he was one of four graduated valedictorian of the Mexican high school in Kingsville. And he'd have to travel. He commuted 20 miles or 20 minutes every day to finish his high school education. And even to get his undergrad, he had to get his dad to get state representatives to write on his behalf in order for him to get a college degree. So those were the issues that we saw back 100 years ago, but we're still seeing the impact and the ripple effects that it has today. And I think nonprofits are doing their best to be the front line of defense and help people that need an immediate need, but they too can only do what they can with the services and policies that they are confined within. Locally, San Antonio, we don't pay our city council members enough. We pay them $45,000. That is not even an effective salary for the cost of living today. And if we want to see folks that will bring a meaningful impression into how we're looking at local government, how we're looking at state government, then we also have to consider, are we paying them enough? Or else it's just a bunch of folks that have a retirement plan or have a business that they can just maintain and operate. And that's something that's just like back money. And this is a hobby. This becomes a hobby for them. And it doesn't become the real work. And they don't have real action or real energy to put into this action. And it needs to be twofold. I think that, again, nonprofits, they're the immediate need. Long term, we got to be breaking down some of the barriers of the systemic issues that were put on by state and federal lawmakers. And how do we do that when we don't have the majority of folks that see themselves as part of the issue? Yeah, we talk about that too a lot on the podcast, how so many of these positions of power of public service pay like nothing. I mean, some not zero. Like if you are a state board of education member, you don't make any money. If you're a state representative, you make $7,200 a year and sometimes like a little stipend, but that's still not a lot. And I just learned this weekend, and it's different state by state, but in New Mexico, 
their state reps make nothing. They don't have staff. And a friend of mine was using this new term called modernizing the public office so that they are making a real wage, a livable wage. And then like you're saying, you get different people who can step up because if you can't afford to not go without an income, who are you going to get in these offices? So here, here. Yes. We very aware of those problems. Oh boy. I know. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this is what happens to me always at this point in every podcast. I'm like, my brain's firing on like every cylinder. We also just recently had a discussion about critical race theory. And I'm also having so many light bulbs go off in terms of systemic racism and disadvantages and how so much of this is a legacy of history. You think about if our legacy leading back to England and the founding of the US is that only the wealthy served in government. That is exactly how it was designed purposely because it was believed that the educated wealthy should be making laws and rules for the country. So of course, that's sort of baked in quietly even to how we have approached government and leadership for so long. And so it just like we really need a reimagining, I'm back to that word, but a reimagining of what government should look like now. We no longer live in a feudal state, like things have changed. And so we need a government that is reflective of that. But how do you do that when still serving our folks who are in that kind of legacy of the way that government operates? It's like there's a real tug of war here that we're talking about. I believe that it's possible, but goodness gracious, it's going to be an uphill battle to see that change because for a lot of people, they're going to hear that as a threat. It's a threat to power that I think some folks believe that they inherently deserve. So that's not really a solution. Here I am just like observing, (laughs) pointing out things that I noticed. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of those, it's like the system's broken. It's like, it's really not. The system is working exactly how the system intends to work. That's why we need to really consider the strategy for like, what's the Trojan horse to go in there and just completely implode on the system and break it so we can redefine a new system that reflects the majority of folks and really brings in folks that have never had a true meaningful representation within these systems. Because as long as we continue to allow the systems to be at play today, then we are going to continue to have this gap of opportunities and suppression of those that come people of color. I mean, there was a study that came out recently of Latina women making less money than their counterparts. And you're looking at that and you're thinking like, the hell happened? And you look at women in general and it's like, we have to be the best moms and the best wives and the best caretakers and be compassionate. Don't use too many exclamation points. Still be assertive. Still work your job 40 plus hours a week. Still do all of this in a high heel with the makeup on, trying to keep yourself together. Don't be a mental hot mess. Don't talk about this. I mean, there's so many things that we have to do as a woman and the pressure that we have to be perfect in whatever role that we're playing in that like you ask a man, it's like to have to do that. And I sent an email the other day and all it said was no. And somebody asked, are you okay? And I'm like, would you ask a man if he was okay if all he said was no in an email? Because I've never had to do that. And you look at that when you look at women representation in government, where it's just like, oh, she's going off her rocker. Like she's went on a tangent today. And oh my God, she's so dramatic. It's like, am I or am I just my vocal cords are two octaves higher than yours? And I showed up in a skirt. I also want to point out that changing the system for the better benefits us all While some people may feel like they're going to lose something, the truth is you'll be all right 
And that sharing (laughs) truly is caring and it will be better for us all. History shows us that when you repress and suppress people, they reach a boiling point. Let's not do that. Let's be proactively looking at solutions that are inclusive and that can benefit all of us. So there's my final plug. I love it. So we were just curious and we've kind of touched on some of this, but if you had a magic wand and could change one thing, what would it be? Oh my goodness. If I could change one thing. And maybe we'll give you two things. <laughs> Accessibility to lawmakers. I feel like they become almost too inaccessible and they become almost this like imaginary idea. So access to lawmakers would be the first one. And education, I think in everything, like the education system, but also just education in communities. Like I think also there's a gap in how we're informing people of what's going on. So they have this misunderstanding of the process in which they need to go through. And it's just like, why can't you just do this? It's like, well, we got to do this, whatever. And I think that if we were to educate people on what that process looks like, we also empower them to take on that process. But if we continue to not educate them on that, then they don't know. They're just going to be loud. So I think if I had a magic wand, it would be just completely like instilling in everybody's brains, like the education of how to just be aware and align together so we can really just as a society take things on. Lastly, before we move into our tension mentions, what are some real actionable items that we can do to help tackle this problem in like a real meaningful way? I think locally, when the pandemic had hit, I was working for the District 1 council member at the time, and I had a very interesting perspective and experience of what happens with local government and what they can do. And I think that local government is truly the first line of defense for folks. And go to the local offices, know who your representatives are, write them, call them, email them, find out who's on their staff, write them. There's always a constituent services representative. Get in touch with them, understand what your resources are have them print out the web form, fill it out with them, like whatever the case may be, getting in touch on a local level helps to empower you when you're starting to look at the state and federal level. They will give you that platform if you bug them enough and they're there for you. You voted them in, they work for you. So put your taxpayer dollars to work, be like, hey, I paid this much, I want this much effort. So put them on the spot, they should be helping you. And get involved with a nonprofit, understand what's going on with your community. And it's that's too overwhelming. Donate your time, donate a box of food, whatever the case, whatever is in your energy or ability to do, just getting out there any way you can. A lot of small things make a big impact. Do you have a favorite nonprofit? Well, obviously, San Antonio Food Bank is my favorite because they've helped me and I am incredibly fortunate for them. And so I'd have to say that because not only do they feed you with food, they've also feed you with education for financial education and being able to get access to housing and different things like that. And they are definitely a vessel of different resources. And I am incredibly grateful for them. I want to point out too that you were just consistent like your magic wand plus what you just talked about that's actionable, which is like access lawmakers and educate. Educate yourself, educate others. So it's like, I'm like, okay, I got my two things now. If I'm going to be consistent with those. Access power, like do that because they should hear from us and educate myself, educate the folks around me and then serve. You also said serve. So that's wonderful. Okay, so let's move into our attention mentions where we mention something that has our attention. So this can be something related to this conversation or not. It can be like a book or a TV show. So what comes to mind, Lawson? You were sharing something with us before we started that sounded fascinating. I was. And then as soon as I said that, I'm like, you know what? Let's really be honest. I am a Swifty. 
a proud Swifty and Ticketmaster and what's been going on with the Ticketmaster debacle on C-SPAN recently has had my heart jumping. So the fact that there are Swift lyrics being utilized to combat the Ticketmaster issue has been amazing for me. So to quote Taylor Swift, because I would be off brand if I didn't, Ticketmaster is definitely the reason why we can't have nice things. So I <laughs> loved it. I'm loving it. That's so great. Yes. I'll go next. So speaking of nonprofits and philanthropy, something I do in my spare time is I serve as the president of the Dell Valley Education Foundation. And we recently partnered with Kendra Scott's philanthropic arm. And I'm just so like in awe of the work she's doing now to really help support women and children and really investing in Texas and Austin. And she's been known to do these like pop-up shops and hospitals and just bring her jewelry and her expertise and find a way to give back. I'm just like really in awe of that. Like I think when much is given to you, it behooves you to give back. And she has seen the joy that brings and it's also enriched her. So Kendra Scott, philanthropy, I think it's called Kendra Cares. So that's my mention. That's such a good one. Gosh, and I love that. Sometimes I can get all about big business, but when it's like that, I can be for it. It's almost like I'm going to give you all a preview of something that I'm going to start, but I haven't started it yet. I have not watched the series Chernobyl on HBO, HBO Max yet. And so my plan is to watch it. And then also there is an accompanying podcast. So I want to do that, a preview of an attention mention. So it may come up again later, folks, but Chernobyl on HBO Max. Oh, yeah. It's a well-done show. And I'm surprised you haven't seen it because the writer also hosts a podcast. Craig Mason. Oh, shoot. Craig Mason. What is their podcast? Script Notes. Script Notes. Also a good one. And I know you listen to that, so. I used to. And for me, here's another confession. Sometimes shows like that that I know are going to be really good and also you can't turn away. It's like it's the real deal. I have to be careful how much of that I consume because it will really get in my head. So I think that's where that caution came from, but it's time. Well, let us know what you think. I will. Well, thank you, Lawson, for sharing your story and helping us understand more of the systemic causes of food insecurity and poverty and some ideas and how we can help correct this ship and make things better for more Texans. So thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. It's been honor. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one. 